from Peter's first epistle. If you suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Christianity has a branding problem. Christianity has a branding problem, according to Professor Phil Zuckerman. And perhaps he is right. If we are true to ourselves, we know that religions fall short about our actions and our inactions. And in the midst of this falling short, a question that keeps lingering in my mind is whether or not there is an authentic Christian path from which we can gain moral clarity. Now I ask this question in light of the fact that we live in a religiously pluralistic, diverse milieu, and many, many are suspicious about religion. And then I turn to Scripture today, and I find that Paul elucidates aspects of the Christian path. He's standing up in front of the hill of Ares, you know, that's what the Areopagus means, and he addresses the Athenians. I just want to situate ourselves a bit. The Areopagus is located just to the right, to the exit of the Acropolis. In classical times, it was the site of the Council of Nobles and the Judicial Court. It's said here that Ares was tried by the gods for the murder of one of the sons of Poseidon. In pre-classical times, this place was where the council of the elders of the city would meet. And those members were actually those who were held in high regard because of their public office. In fact, the very sermon that we heard today, Paul's sermon, has been now commemorated through a bronze plaque. Now, from this very sermon, we know that Paul is drawing from a variety of sources to convey who Jesus is. Perhaps he heard about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, recorded in John chapter 4, where Jesus addresses a woman who is quite different from him and points out to the fundamental truth that God is spirit and those who worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. Where Jesus gives the Samaritans, people who are different from the Jews, clarity that God gives us sustenance through a renewed understanding of life's deeper purposes by partaking of the living water. The living water of what we as Christians call now the waters of baptism. Perhaps Paul is reflecting also 
on, an ans- on the answer to Apostle Thomas's question that we heard last week. How do we know the way? You know, where Jesus says in a powerful yet pithy reply, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or perhaps Paul is reflecting on his very transformative encounter with the Lord of life on the road to Damascus. Wherever he is drawing from, the early church, particularly if we look at the epistle to the Hebrews, developed this understanding and relays that Jesus is the very icon, the very image, the embodied and embedded truth of a living God. In fact, Paul later on underscores this in his epistle to the Colossians, saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, where thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all have been created through him and for him. So in the midst of a world that is seeking to know the truth, to know God, Paul offers clarity. The clarity of knowing the way, being guided by the advocate, the Holy Spirit, as we read in our gospel today. Being people who have Jesus' commandments on our hearts and in our minds. To love God, to love our neighbor, to serve others, particularly to serve those who are lost. And Paul offers this clarity in a day and age to each and every one of us, but particularly to the Athenians, saying, that in Jesus there is a new view of humanity where everyone is equal, where everyone is beloved of God, where everyone is worthy of redemption and dignity. And by that very statement, Paul offers us a grammar. And perhaps it's the role of contemporary Christians to live into that witness and sustain a sense of clarity and grammar to a world that so desperately needs it. I'd like to tell you two stories today, and then I'll close very quickly. The first is about a former parishioner of mine. She explored Buddhist philosophy, Hinduism, Sufism, the Kabbalah, because she yearned for clarity. During her exploration, she continued to be tugged by the values of non-judgment, compassion, and care. She had grown up in the church. She had gone through the motions as an acolyte. Yet in her high school years, she found the church to be hyper-judgmental and super-unwelcoming. In her words, the church plays great lip service about love until someone who doesn't look like us, dress like us, smell like us, or sound like us, shows up. So in her search, a turning point 
encount- uh, occurred when she evaluated the impact of one's faith claims on ethical behavior. As part of that exercise, she studied the great saints of all the traditions. But the saint that she was drawn to the most was Mother Teresa. She was drawn into Mother Teresa's love for the poor, and yes, her cycles of doubt and great faith. And upon being so taken by Mother Teresa, she made to, to, she made the decision to live like Mother Teresa and thus committing herself to following the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus. Yet years had passed, and in her very words, she said she wanted to be by, like Mother Teresa, but she could not. So, what she decided to do was to go on to medical school. She went, graduated from Harvard Medical School, completed her residency, and lives her rest of her life serving doctors without borders and the World Health Organization in conflict zones like East Timor and Rwanda. She received clarity and when faced with the choice, decided to act on that clarity by following the way, the truth, and the life. Here's another story. And this actually comes from UVA professor and theologian Charles Marsh. Now Marsh recounts something that is in the annals of our history, which testifies to the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus in the midst of other voices in life. And it is in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. Charles writes, when Martin Luther King moved to Montgomery in the spring of 1954, civil rights activism was not on his mind. The day after Rosa Parks refused to move from her seat in the front of the bus, Ralph Abernathy talked King into accepting the leadership of the Montgomery Improvement Association. But King only accepted that invitation after being reassured that the boycott would be over in one day. Now, by the end of the second month of that boycott, King fell into deep despair. Fell into despair about his leadership and about the direction of the boycott. And on this one particular night, King returned home. He was eager to sleep for it had been one o'clock in the morning. But then a threatening call calls that he had received 30 to 40 times a day by that point, interrupted his attempt to sleep. That night, he could not shake the meaning, that that menacing voice that kept repeating, repeating the hateful words he kept replaying in his head. And with his hands buried in his head, he cried out to God because in his own words, he had came to the nth of his strength. So tired, 
so much in despair. In the middle of that night, King writes that he re-encountered the living Jesus Christ. He wrote, I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. Later, he continued to recall, Jesus promised never to leave me, never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never to leave me, never to leave me, never to leave me alone, never alone. Friends, amidst this c the cacophony of voices, King heard the truth that Jesus promises to never leave us alone in our struggles and in the work that we are called to do. So among the several questions I ask, isn't it time for the church to be the church and speak truth to power? For we do not worship an unknown God. We worship Jesus Christ, who is the very icon of God's love, concern, and dignity for all creation, who never leaves us alone, who never leaves us alone as we seek to discern the will of God to build a better world. Brothers and sisters, where does this leave us? Perhaps... Like Paul, like Paul offered clarity to the Athenians, perhaps we as Christians need to take our baptism seriously and offer clarity to the world. Clarity about who our God is. Who is the Lord of our life? Is it the idolatry of power for power's sake? Money for money's sake, or any other idol that we have cast? Or is it the Lord of life, the name that we bow down to in Jesus the Christ? So my invitation for you is twofold. One, examine who holds lordship over your life. How do we gain moral clarity in light of that lordship? Secondly, this coming week, our vestry goes on retreat. So I invite you to pray. Pray for the direction of our parish so that we may truly live into the vision of a church where deep questions can be raised, clarity received, and a place where the authentic love of Jesus can not only be embodied, but shared with a world that so desperately needs it. Amen.